we can learn a lot from the wisdom of children. Some points of advice that were collected from a 14-year-old named Michael. He says, when your dad is mad and asks you, do I look stupid, don't answer him. (laughs) Another boy named Michael said, never tell your mom that her diet is not working. Susie, age nine, said, never hold a dustbuster and a cat at the same time. (laughs) Naomi, age 15, said, if you want a kitten, start by asking for a horse. (laughs) Lauren, age nine, said, felt markers do not, are not good to use as lipstick. Joel, age 10, said, don't pick, up your, don't pick on your sister when she's holding a baseball bat. <laughs> Eileen, in all of her eight-year-old wisdom, said, never try to baptize a cat. <laughs> and Patrick, age 10, from all of his years on this earth, his advice was, never trust a dog to watch your food. <laughs> you know, even just a matter of nine 10, 11 years can give some pretty good wisdom that you can listen to it and you can say, that makes a lot of sense. I think I'll live by that. Think of one who has been in existence since the beginning of time. You know, if you think about it, there is no such thing as prehistoric time because we have been given the history of the earth, the history of the universe from the one who was there, from the one who made it happen. And he can be trusted. And we move forward in the book of Hebrews into an understanding that it gives us of faith. Faith in Jesus Christ is everything. When it comes to a relationship with God, faith in Jesus Christ is everything. So as we step back into Hebrews 11, let's pick up a little bit of where we were at in Hebrews 10. There were some sobering words given to the readers of this letter, many of whom I believe were on the fence wondering, is it worth it to get baptized? Is it worth it to join this motley crew of Christians that the only reason why it looks good is because of the Savior that they follow? Is it worth it to walk away from the temple? And the writer is telling them things like, no sacrifice remains because the sacrifice of Christ has eliminated all of what's going on over at the temple, people. So there were readers that were were kind of tossing this back and forth. And we read in verses 35 through 39 of Hebrews 10, Therefore do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, and I believe that's referring to obeying the gospel of Christ, you may receive what is promised. For, and then he quotes, yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Referring to the fact that throughout the Old Testament, it has been a matter of faith. 
And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him, end quote. And then if you recall, he gives the key to understanding what he was saying in this. Speaking in that kind of 100% Uh, inclusion of himself and all of those that he's writing to, but we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. He doesn't say, but we are of those who do good works and preserve their souls. He doesn't say, but we are those who God loves more than other people, and thus our souls are preserved. But he comes down to the crux of the matter, saving faith in Christ. The author has established that Jesus is worthy of our faith throughout all of these chapters as our king, as our high priest, as our perfect final sacrifice, and so on. Here in chapter 11, as we move into it, he takes his time explaining that it's faith in Jesus that makes the difference. And he begins by explaining the value of the faith that many of his readers already had. And so we move into chapter 11 of Hebrews where he writes, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. We talked this morning about supernatural confidence. The confidence that we are given in Christ is given to us supernaturally. That's why I titled this Supernatural confidence. I thought about the Ukrainian people's will to fight, to pursue victory. It's interesting that Peggy mentioned that their study of Nehemiah talks about each person depending on their neighbor to defend their area of Jerusalem in the same way that the Ukrainians are divided up to basically you defend your backyard. But, but the victory, they understand, is dependent on their resolve to fight for their home and for their neighbor's home. Their confidence is in this, that they know if we don't fight, we're confident that we will lose our nation. If we do fight, we may keep our nation, is their thought. That is what their, where their confidence lies. But we have a much greater assurance That the spiritual battle that we face will be won and has already been won by our Lord Jesus Christ. And for us, faith in Him is everything. In fact, the faith in Christ's eternal work that we can have, that we should have, is assurance. It should be assurance in itself. So as a follower of Christ, no matter what you see going on around you in this world, you should live by supernatural, saving, persevering faith. Kind of care, by meaning, saying that, we're carrying on that key term 
that, that is used just in the verse prior to this, remember, in Hebrews 10. Just because it's, there's a chapter 10 and a chapter 11 doesn't mean there's context here. We are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls, he just says. Saving faith is a persevering faith that does not shrink back from trusting Christ as our Savior. Live by supernatural, saving, persevering faith. First see that you are to live by supernatural, saving, persevering faith, which assures and proves the truth to you. The fact that you trust in Christ as your Savior, if you have trusted Christ as your Savior, the fact that you do is a signal to you that God is at work in you. We see here two statements that combined with each other give a fuller understanding of saving faith. Faith is equated with assurance of things hoped for. The same term here for assurance is used in chapter 3, verse 14, for confidence. Where, where the writer says, For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. In other words, it's not dependent on the strength of our faith, but our saving faith is persevering faith which holds on to the end. He talks about an assurance of things hoped for. In the following context, this would seem to include what the Old Testament saints, even though they had faith in God's promises, yet they did not receive what they had been hoping for in this present life, as we will see in verse 13. These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. What does that say of the theology of some evangelicals that say, well, if you don't see it happen in this life presently, it must just mean you don't have enough faith. Would that be their judgment of all these Old Testament saints that we're going to learn from here in this chapter? No. Even in their faith, they didn't see the things that they had been promised in this life. You can see how saving faith is persevering faith in that it does not shrink back because it's confidently holding out for a future that has been promised that we may not see in this life. I love the term assurance here. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's also used in some other Greek literature for a title deed. Uh, you know, Ron Perkheiser, uh, his, his job is that when somebody does a title search, Ron knows what courthouse to go to. He knows where to go in that courthouse. And, he's, and it's Ron's job to dig through all those files to be able to pull out that deed and say, yep, they own it. Yep, it belongs to them. And, and what we are told here is that the faith that we hold in Christ as our Savior is something that we can look at and say, this is my title deed to what I possess for eternity. It is an assurance to us 
Saving faith isn't treated as any small thing. It is described as being enough, our documentation of what is truly real. The presence of faith in itself while living in a faithless world should be an encouragement to us as Christians. I know it can be discouraging to look at a sinful world and for them to look at themselves and think, the problem is all of these other people that are keeping me from what my heart desires. When we realize what Scripture has told us, no, the problem is your heart. Don't be looking to it for your truth. What you need is to recognize that you have a sinful heart, but that Jesus paid for it. And Jesus paid for every sinful action that has come out of that sinful heart of yours. And even if you can't turn your lifestyle around right now, there's forgiveness because of the cross. And he'll start working on you. The presence of faith in itself while living in a faithless world should be an encouragement to us. I love how Warren Wearsby says, This is an inward conviction from God that what he has promised he will perform. The presence of God-given faith in one's heart is conviction enough that he will keep his word. Faith is also equated with conviction. It's defined as a proof by which a thing is proved or tested. It is to be what we hold on to that represents what we cannot touch at this time. It is no small substitute for what is visible, for what is invisible. It's our conviction about what is invisible. It's what allows us to overcome the world that is around us, as we're told in 1 John 5, verses 4 through 5. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. Our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world, it says in verse 5? Except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. Some sectors of evangelicalism, as I mentioned, argued that the more faith that you have, the more powerful manifestations you will be able to create or you will see. And the truth is that saving faith perseveres because it trusts in what is unseen with conviction. It's actually a weaker faith that must be driven by something happening in the seen world. As I mentioned, these two concepts, faith as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen, they give us a fuller understanding of our idea. They help us to understand that our faith given to us by God is our connection to both the results of Christ's work, the things to come, and the results of Christ's work, the reality that is invisible to us. Or as Oswald Sander puts it much more clearly, faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as present and the invisible as if it's seen. Faith enables the believing soul to treat the future as present and the invisible as seen. 
I appreciate many of you have the ESV study Bible. And you look down, if you look down in the notes there, you'd see that it says this. Biblical faith is not a vague hope grounded in the imaginary, wishful thinking. Instead, faith is a settled confidence that something in the future, something that is not yet seen but has been promised by God, will actually come to pass because God will bring it about. Thus, biblical faith is not blind trust in the face of contrary evidence, not an unknowable leap in the dark. Rather, biblical faith is a confident trust in the eternal God. You know how valuable, you know what defines how valuable your faith is? How strong the object of that faith is. Somebody could have lots of faith, but it can be in something that doesn't exist. We're told here to have simple saving faith in the Almighty God. That's powerful faith. Because the one that it has faith in is unlimited in his power. I appreciate something that Spurgeon described. He describes a scenario where he says, Suppose there is a fire in the upper room of a house and the people gather in the street. A child is in the upper story. How is he to escape? He cannot leap down, for he will be dashed to pieces. A strong man comes beneath and cries, Drop into my arms. So the child must believe that amidst the blur of the smoke, the man is actually there. And is actually as strong as he claims to be. And the child must believe that he will do what he said and catch him. Hear this. Faith resides within us as a self-proving assurance of the future reality of God's eternal kingdom. As Romans tells us, That our groaning is evidence of the Spirit's presence within us. As we're told in Romans 8.23, not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. The very groaning that we experience should be an assurance to us that God has something better in mind. Saving, persevering faith is being convinced of the truths that we cannot yet see. As Romans 8 also tells us of our unseen adoption as God's children, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. He does this with the faith that He gives us by His Spirit. Your faith is intended to be a comfort to to you, especially when you think of those who walk in darkness in our present age. And you wonder, how can they see life so differently than me? See also that we are to live by supernatural, saving, persevering faith, which connects you with the saints of old. It's what he says in verse Two, for by it, speaking of faith, people of old received their commendation. Now he lists, he's going to be listing off in this chapter people which the readers 
these Hebrew readers would have been sitting there going, yeah, I know him. Yeah, I know them. And he's listing them off, talking about it was by faith that all this was able to happen. For it says, by it, by faith. This is a summary statement for the rest of the chapter, as I mentioned. It wasn't by these people's grit or determination. It wasn't by their wit or their willingness. It wasn't by their quick thinking or their cunning. It wasn't by their gallantry or by their good looks. They may have had these things, but chapter 11 makes it clear that they were examples of faith. And that faith always had to do with an assurance of the future that was to come and a conviction about what their eyes could not yet see. The commendation that they receive works in more than one direction in most of, their, most of their accounts. It is by faith they receive God's personal commendation that they are His or as Wiest says this, God bore witness to them that their faith gained victory for them over all obstacles. But also, it, their faith works in this way, that they are commended by God to others that they actually received a relationship with Him. Even though life remained hard, it's because of their faith that they are commended for themselves and for the original readers and for us. We join the saints of old who also received a saving relationship with God by faith. We can be further assured by the witness that God bore to them and of them saved by faith. Live by supernatural Saving, persevering faith. You know, when I travel outside of the United States, I don't have to worry that I'm not going to be welcomed back as a citizen. I carry with me a passport that is my documentation of the fact that I will be welcomed back. And in this way, our faith should be an assuring, have an assuring effect that you are God's child if you have received Christ as your Savior. You trust the gospel. It acts like that documentation. Still, even without my passport in hand, I, I can be convinced that I'm still a U.S. citizen. I know that it, it, this invisible reality is the case, even though I'm, I'm not constantly opening that book up. Okay, am I there? Am I there? Is that my picture? I can still be convinced of that invisible reality. In the same way your faith should be a conviction that Christ's work for you in the heavenly temple that we have learned about in these chapters of Hebrew was sufficient, just as these original readers needed to trust it to be the case. And if you want to plan a trip out of the country, you might comfort, find comfort in the fact, knowing that, that all other American citizens have done the same and been welcomed back. And in the same way, similarly, the faith of the saints of old in our God should bolster our confidence in God's economy of faith. Sadly, the, the post-millennial response of, well, what's true for you is good, and it's not necessarily what's true for me. 
And what's true for me doesn't necessarily have to be true for you. It leaves people that think that way comfortable with the fact that they don't have saving faith. And without saving, persevering faith in Christ, any person is faced to leave, the, to, to, is faced, I'm sorry, is, is left to face the judgment of God. As chapter 10 warned us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So from the next verse, I challenge you with this. Live by supernatural surrendering faith. Live by supernatural surrendering faith. Good place to start is the beginning. Where he says, by faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. So chapter 11 walks through biblical history. Uh, tracing the significance of faith. And so it's only appropriate for it to begin at the very beginning. And, and, and we, we are not told here that by faith we accept. It's not like, okay, well, it doesn't fit science, so you just got to accept it by faith. No, it's saying by faith we understand. We perceive it to be true. We understand it means to perceive with the reflective intelligence. Romans 1, verses 18 through 20, and we'll revisit this at the end. It says, what can be known about God is plain to them. <clears throat> Speaking of how every person walking this earth is accountable for the knowledge that God created it. What can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world. That same term is clearly understood. Ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. But eyes that are clouded by sin cannot see the world around them by faith. In fact, sin will cause people to do all they can to avoid the truth that God is their creator. I mean, <clears throat> we've gotten to the point where macroevolution, meaning one species becoming another, is saying, well, Given enough chance, given enough opportunity, it could happen. Well, how much time is needed? Well, it, it needs an infinite amount of time. This isn't very scientific. Uh, the prominent evolutionist Stephen Hawking has even come to the fact, a uh, point of saying, well, the, it, it may be that the earth was seeded by some alien uh, civilization, and that's how life originally came here. But I'll believe that before I believe that a God created it. Doesn't sound very scientific. If the supposed scientists of our day, and I would describe them as naturalistic scientists, the ones that close the doors on anything beyond the natural world. There are plenty of scientists 
that leave the door open for the work of the supernatural. But the naturalistic scientists of our day, if they have to resort to unscientific ideas, it's probably not all that unreasonable to believe in a creator God. In fact, I agree with Frank Turek who says, I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. It takes more faith to believe that this world just happened. The truth is that the being the creator of the universe, God is the sovereign source of all that we know. God spoke the universe into existence by his word, as we're told in Psalm 33, verse 6 and verse 9. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all of their hosts. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. This was counter, a countercultural idea, understand, even at the time when this was being written. Even the Greeks of that day were thinking that the universe must have been formed by some formless matter. But, but guess what? If that's the case, then matter had no beginning. Matter is eternal. By that definition, matter and the universe is God. They come right back to a theological argument. The first law of thermodynamics states that, neith that neither matter nor energy can be created or destroyed. The whole equation, E equals mc squared, is basically explaining the fact that matter and energy are interchangeable. I, I share that to say, it is very likely in my mind that God's explanation of this fact is explained that when that in the fact that all matter, all matter and energy in our universe that has ever existed was spoken into existence when God simply said, let there be light. And it flowed out of his very power, out of his very existence. This means that the only self-existent being in this entire universe is God himself. Everything else flowed out of his existence. And all of the matter, all of the energy that this universe has ever contained, contained or will ever know could have been, it, I, I just mean that is that the point when God is describing it happen, happening? When he said, let there be light. Perceiving the world around us as having been made by God is seeing it through eyes of faith. And God's creative work was done simply by his powerful creative word. That's what we're told here. The result of his creative word is that all that is visible, our physical universe came from what was not visible, nor in existence prior to him creating it. That's what we're being told here. <clears throat> Psalm 90 verse 2 tells us this, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. You see, that's what those who do not have faith in Christ, who do not want to face 
the fact that they are created, that is the truth that they want to avoid. Because they're still believing the lie of the garden. You can be like God. And they're holding on to that by the grip of their nails. It follows that he, as God, made it all. He owns it. God is the sovereign Lord of all. Or as 1 Chronicles 29, verse 11 states, Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. It is your, His because He made it. He owns it. This is what sin will constantly push men to deny. You know, I remember, I might have shared this before, I was, I was teaching children's church um, like 25 years ago. No, it would have been 20, 20 years ago. And I was teaching on the days of creation. And I took uh, construction paper, and I just decided to kind of have some fun and, and like made different days of creation with construction paper, you know, kind of gluing it together and stuff. And in a couple of hours, that was the best I did. Paper and glue. You know, and I, and I brought it to the kids, and I showed it to them, and I said, this is the best I can do. But God spoke the real thing into existence in a moment. You know, I think our understanding of it uh, you know, is a day. But if God wanted to say he did it in six seconds, he could say that, and he could have done it. He, uh, he says he did it in a day each, and I think that's him strutting his stuff. And so I'll, I'll, let, him, I'll let him stick with his story. And I believe his story is true. God being the source of everything amounts to God being the sovereign Lord of all, whether it is acknowledged or not. We don't make God Lord of our lives. We acknowledge that he is Lord of our lives. And those who do not recognize him as creator and Lord are still morally responsible to him. I think that the responsibility that we have to God as our creator and his response to, to our lack of faith in him as our creator, God summed it up in the supernatural consequence of Romans 1, 18 through 28. And I know that this is a long passage of scripture that I close with, but I think that we can see what, in the madness of what is going on in our culture exactly what God told us 2,000 years ago takes place when a culture refuses to acknowledge that by faith we understand that God created the whole universe out of what was invisible, out of what did not exist prior to it. So these verses explain the situation that our culture is running headlong into. And it is a consequence we read in 
Romans chapter 1, 18 through 28, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God, as I read earlier, is plainly <clears throat> sorry, for what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so that they are without excuse. Then he goes on to explain this. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. All the different things that the temples of the world have, have, have worshipped or the temple of our sacred humanism as it worships the heart of man and whatever he desires. <clears throat> and here is the supernatural consequence. Therefore God gave them up to the lusts of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. And we see consequence heaped on consequence. For this reason, God gave them up to the dishonorable passions. Guess what? What the sinful heart of man desires is not good for him. For their women exchange natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. We are seeing our culture run headlong into consequences that they think is the results of their liberation. And it is actually chains and, and, and jail cell doors that only locks them more and more into the depravity of their own hearts. And it starts with a refusal to acknowledge that God is their creator. God is our creator. And by that, he is our Lord. I'm going to close in prayer. And then um, I'm going to welcome our brother Benjamin Spencer up, who is, who's been with us for a while. And ben, the Lord's going to be moving Benjamin on into another uh, stage of his life. And, and he just wanted to uh, just say a few words of thanks. So let's bow our heads and then Benjamin, I'll have you come up. Father, we are so grateful for faith. 
Lord, it can, it can rock us a little bit as we see more and more of our world just, just looking at us like we got two heads because we believe in you as our creator, because we believe in you as our Lord, because we trust you for our salvation, because we, we know that a man who lived and died 2,000 years ago made all the difference in the universe. But Lord, let our hearts break for the blindness of the world. Let our hearts break for those who live in the consequence of their denial of you as their creator and Lord, as they run headlong into the fulfillment of their sinful desires that we know only leads to greater consequence of further blindedness. Lord, thank you for the faith to believe. It is by grace that we have been saved through faith. And this is not of ourselves. It is a gift of God. And we thank you for it. Lord, I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.